0: Please can you remind me if you if you'll be so kind? Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Laurie LeBay, and I'm the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. For those of you that are new to the show, I always like to tell people a little bit about us. Um, basically, we're an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. And we believe by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we can go ahead and remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living with the disease continue to live with purpose as well as those who are caring for them. Together, we can help everyone understand the true needs of this disease and um, make people not feel so isolated and fearful. At our core, Alzheimer's Speaks uh, believes collaboratively we can win this battle. And I know it's working because of all your likes and clicks and shares uh, that you are doing regarding our resources. You see, each of you has had a huge impact on raising Alzheimer's Speaks profile and sharing our information. So I want to I want to give you all a big shout out and thank you for making us the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, according to Doctor. Dr. Oz. Those couple of seconds that you take to share this information just puts it out before your sphere of influences. Um, you see so many people are dealing with dementia that we don't even know. But the more information that's out there, the more common it appears to be, the easier it is for someone to grab when they need it. And today's show is gonna be really important for you to share. Um, we have Vicki Kind with us, um, and she is just has some fabulous resources that will help people in so many ways who are dealing not only with uh, dementia and other, um, other forms of illness, but just anybody who's caring for a loved one or even a professional caring for someone. There's, there's a basic of, of how do you make the right decisions for them. So, um, again, I'll thank you in advance for tweeting us, liking us, sharing us with your, your LinkedIn groups and any other social media that you that you may be on. Um, for those of you that may have your own story, we would love for you to reach out to us and, and tell us, what are you doing to shift our dementia care culture? It's a, if it's on a personal level, maybe you're a person diagnosed with the disease. Maybe you're caring for a loved one. Maybe you're a business professional or an author or a movie director or a researcher. We want to hear from everyone. We want everyone's voice to be heard because none of us can do this alone. So please uh, you know, go to alzheimerspeaks.com and just click on our Contact Us button and shoot me an email and we'd love to get you booked for the show. On our website, alzheimerspeaks.com, you'll also find out about all of our other platforms, our blog, the Dementia Chats webinars where our experts actually have dementia, um, our resource website. Um, you'll find the feed for the radio show, as well as the YouTube channel and free tools. So, make sure that you um, that you take a peek there. Uh, what else do I want to tell you about today? As always, there's a few uh, there's a few companies that I want to give a big shout out to. And uh, the first one I want to mention is the Alzheimer's team. They are working on clinical trials, and they are really trying to reshape Alzheimer's treatments. And they're doing that through global Alzheimer's research at no cost to participants. So go to the Alzheimer's team on Facebook, or you can just go to our homepage, AlzheimerSpeaks.com, and you'll see an ad there. Just click on it, and there'll be a short survey that you can take to find out if you fit any of the clinical trials that they have going on right now. I'd also like to shout out to Dementia Action Alliance, known as DAA, and their website is daanow.org. They're a newer organization here in the U.S. um, at a national level uh, trying to change how we deliver person-centered dementia care. And um, it's just a a wonderful organization. You'll find great tools and resources. We're in the process of just putting together the information from the national survey that we just got back. Uh, We did two. One uh, one was uh, completed by people living with the disease. Um, Another was by Care Partners, which I think will give you some fascinating facts. Uh, The Purple Angel Project, if you're not familiar with that, that's a new global symbol for dementia, and I I firmly believe everybody should be part of this program. We want this symbol to be as well-known as the pink ribbon is for breast cancer, and there's absolutely no reason that it can't be done. let me see. I think that's all I'm going to give a shout-out to uh, right now. And let me go ahead and tell you a little bit about Vicky. Um, Vicky Kind is a clinical bioethicist, and she's a professional speaker and hospice volunteer. She's been with us on the show before, and she is known as the people's bioethicist um, because of her rare individual ability to bridge the two worlds, that of healthcare professionals and families struggling to make the right decision. She is an honorary board member of the Well Spouse Association, and she's been a caregiver for many years and for six of her own family, uh, family members. So Vicki totally gets the difficulty in making decisions for someone else and, you know, what's truly um, in their best interest. So welcome, Vicki. How are you today?
1: I am wonderful, and I am so happy and grateful to be here with you. Uh, yeah, because I totally do get it. it. This is hard, but people like you, Lori, you are making it easier. So thank
0: you. Well, I think together we're all making it a little bit easier. You know, I I uh, was a caregiver uh, for my mom for thirty years. My dad was the primary, but then when he got sick, I really had to step up to the plate. And boy, you just um, you think you're making the right decisions for somebody, but you're not always, um, because sometimes that, that inner side kind of squawks out and says, what about me? I have a life too, and this would make my life easier if you would just do this. And and we all try to pretend like those conversations don't happen in our head and our heart, but they do, and they need to be addressed. And that's one of the things that I love about your um, caregiver's Path to Compassionate Decision Making. You've got this great resource workbook and conversational guide, plus, it has a visual toolkit um, that is just a fantastic way for individuals and families to kind of have, have this conversation. Um, now, my understanding is that this workbook is a supplement to your original book, um, uh, but maybe not. I, I, is that correct on that? And if so, you want to tell people about your book as well?
1: Right. So the workbook is partially a supplement, kind of it's a yes and no answer. Uh, it's partially a supplement to my original book that came out five years ago, The Caregiver's Path to Compassionate Decision-Making. But it also has all sorts of new tools that I've developed. Um, A few of the chapters are definitely things that I wish I had thought of and had included in the first book. You know, I think every author has that moment where they're like, oh, I wish I'd said that, I wish I'd added that. And I, I decided not to rewrite or put in other addendums in my original book because people truly love that book just the way it is. And um, a lot of caregivers will say to me, it feels like you're holding my hand and helping me make the right decisions. It, it, they feel so supported by it. And, you know, that's one of my missions is to help caregivers be more empowered instead of feeling so helpless and hopeless. You know, we can be stronger together. So a few parts of the new resource workbook really are things that I wish I would have put over in the original book. But the other pieces of this new workbook are things that I've been creating the past five years because every time I speak with families or speak at conferences or talk to healthcare care professionals, new ways and new approaches come into my head, new ways of getting through to people so that they can understand their choices and make better choices. Um, So one of the reasons that I also wrote this workbook is because a lot of professionals kept saying to me, you know, I'm using what you told me in your book. I'm using your language. I'm using your approach. And I thought, that's wonderful. And a lot of times other professionals would say, I want to use your language and I want to use your approach, but, you know, I only heard it at the conference and I, I wish there was like a little guide, like exactly how to say things. And that's one of my specialties. I, one of the things I do best is knowing how to say things so regular people can understand it. I don't speak fancy medical language. I don't speak fancy, I don't speak fancy at all, as you can tell. Um, I speak so people can hear it. And so I started creating all these separate little tools, and they started working. And I'm like, wait, I could put all of these into a workbook. And this workbook is actually designed, it's an 8 by 11, it's full-size pieces of paper. uh, It's collated on the side. And it's designed to be photocopied and shared. The pictures, the, the diagrams, the tools are supposed to be photocopied and given to other family members, other clients you're working with. Support groups can use them. Copy the articles. Share everything. Um, you know I, I want this information being used because this is an action workbook. Uh, it, it It really helps you take the necessary actions that are are challenging.
0: Well, one of the things that I like is you—you you have the—you have it broken down into kind of um, medical decision-making tools, evaluating danger and risk tools, caregiver conversation and support tools, end of life. I mean, you have really the the heavy topics. Easily accessible, so you can just dive into what you need if you don 't have time to review the whole book and um, and I think that that is so helpful because when when you 're giving care to someone you know typically we 're in crisis half the time, <laughs> if we want to admit it or not. <laughs> And, um, you know, time is really limited. So the way that you've structured it is really, I think, a very, very useful and, and helpful way um, to, to point families in the correct, uh, in the correct uh, moment um, and, and process for them. Can you tell us about your visual conversation tools and, and how that helps professionals who might be using your book as well?
1: Yeah, so I am not a very visual person. I'm much more of an auditory person. Uh, and so for me, talking and listening, this is my normal way of communication. But what I've been learning is a lot of people actually are more, much more visual. In fact, the statistics say that 65% of people are visual learners, 30% are auditory, and 5% are kinesthetic, like they need to actually do the thing to figure out how to use the tool. And I, this has become very obvious to me because I work with a lot of amazing professionals, both inside of the hospital setting and outside with working with the community, and these professionals are talking to the patients and the families, and then they're talking and they're talking and they're talking, and nothing is getting in. You know, after they, I mean, these are great professionals who are saying all the right things, but it's not getting into the head and heart of the families and, and patients. And I, I ran into a study, this is a medical study that was done, where they asked patients as patients were walking out the door of the doctor's office, right, they're walking down the hall, and all, all of a sudden they're asked, what did the doctor tell you? Researchers found out that 40 to 80 percent of what the doctor just said falls out of their person's brain. The patient literally can't remember 40 to 80 percent of the doctor's wisdom and advice and instructions literally right outside the door. Um, And that what they did remember, because they said, Well, what do you remember to these patients? What they remembered, half of it was wrong.
0: And, and, and I, I can believe that, because again, everyone is in such overload, and you know you you take bits and pieces, and it's kind of like uh you know playing telephone when you were a kid, you know putting the candy to your ear and seeing what comes back, what you started with because um you know you it's just hard to maintain and you know and put things in compartments where where they're safe and sound, and so much of the information that we get from the doctor is verbal. And it's not in writing. And I, and I think, you know, for me, that's something I would like to see changed as well, that they really are documenting some of these um, comments and um, recommendations that they have for people because it's not, it always isn't as simple as you think it is. Um, and it sounds good and it sounds fine when you're sitting there and you're like, okay, 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 and then you get home and go, what the heck? <laughs> What was that? Where was my note? and you didn't want to take notes because you didn't want to look rude or you didn't want to, the doctor getting paranoid, you know that you're going to sue him or something, but you know people talk about having those extra set of eyes and ears with you and and you know I think that's so important but your your book in terms of guiding and how to how to digest all this stuff I think is is fantastic for people. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry, sorry, I kind of jumped in and cut you off there, but I just, I, I, I know. You're totally right, because
1: first off, this is just everybody going to the doctor. Now we put a tired, overwhelmed caregiver who's been up half the night, who's stressed because they're worried about carpool for their kids and taking care of their aging parent. And, I mean, life is hard and complicated. So, uh, you know, I realized that I was making these mistakes. I, I would go to the doctor's office with my husband. Sometimes we go with each other to support each other, right? Another pair of eyes and ears and we would get to the doc we'd go to the doctor, we'd be walking out to the parking lot and I would say to him, Wasn't that interesting that the doctor said and I'd say something and my husband would look at me and say, That's not what the doctor said. I'm like, No, I'm sure that's what the doctor said. No, that's not what he said. I mean we, are, we both work in the healthcare field. We couldn't remember it, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so, you know, we're, we are doing everything we can. Uh, so some of the things that I teach doctors to teach their patients, but I'll just teach you because let's, let's teach it right to the patients and families. Bring in your notepad. Bring in something that you can write on, like something that has a little backing so you can put it on your lap. Take notes. Um, If the doctor will let you, use your cell phone and record the conversation. That has helped so much. You can go home and replay it, especially for people at home that didn't go to the appointment and they say, what did the doctor say? Um, Another thing you can do is actually stop the doctor after they've given you information and say, you know what, doctor, let me see if I've understood you correctly. It's called the explain back, teach back method where you literally repeat back what you think You've just heard, and then the doctor can clarify or correct or say yes, you got it right, because the goal is you, you have to be able to remember this. You can go home and call your siblings or call the, the other person and say, "This is what the doctor said." Mm-hmm. Um, and the, it's, it's hard because the doctors are in a rush. Most doctors were never taught really good communication techniques. Um, I spend a lot of my time teaching doctors how to be better communicators, but I can't get to them all, and I can't fix them all. So I need us to teach the doctors how to help us. So don't be afraid of stopping and saying, wait a minute, you've told me a lot. Let me write it down. Let me repeat it back. Um, You can also have a loved one listen in by phone, right, because we have cell phones. Put the person on speaker and have somebody at home listen or take notes that can't be there at that appointment because we, we've, we've got to help move the information because people cannot make good decisions if they didn't actually understand it. So back to your original question, I do remember it because I was listening, <laughs> yeah, visual <laughs> tools. I've re- Because I'm not a good visual person, um, I've been working with uh, a friend of mine who's an amazing fine artist and and. She's just wonderful. She is so visual. Like sometimes when we're talking, she's speaking visual language and I'm speaking auditory and and we have to really check in with each other. Is that what you meant? So she's able to take these conversations and the techniques and tools that I'm using with language communication and she's created visuals for them. She's created pictures and graphs and diagrams and templates and uh, all sorts of things that that show what I'm saying, and those are in this workbook. And I'm just so thrilled because I show these to people and they go, oh, now I get it. Oh, what you're saying is they're communicating. I don't have to keep talking. The pictures talk for themselves. So I'm I'm pretty
0: excited about this. Oh, very cool. That's uh, and that's a really really interesting. You know, one thing you had mentioned about taking notes or even trying to um, record a doctor. I have I have found myself that doctors get really uncomfortable being recorded. Everyone's so worried about you know in the U.S. about being sued. And it isn't so much about disseminating good information or always being helpful. Have you have you run across that? Because um, I've run that. I've heard that from a lot of people. I've experienced myself um, with different professionals. They they don't want to be recorded, and that really is the easiest way to be able to share information. You know, in terms of what is going on. Um, right, and it doesn't take as much time. If you've got it recorded, then you don't really even have to necessarily always go back and say, "Okay, I have," you know, th- you know, summarize things. So that's always a good idea to do because uh, we may be interpreting it just a hair different, as well.
1: Right. So I, I do think lots of physicians are uncomfortable. I think, unfortunately, they're always worried about being sued. Literally, that's they're always worried. Um, but. Wh- I kind of try to approach it, Um, I might say, um, I really want to be a good healthcare partner with you, doctor. I know you really want me to follow your instructions well. And one of the things that could help me, doctor, is if I could record the instructions so I I can refer back to it at home because I might forget something and then, then I have to come back and we have to have this conversation again. So... Number one is that we're partners in this, right? It's not, I don't trust you, I don't like you, doctor. You know how healthcare is. Like, that's the stuff that might be running through my brain. But I'm not going to say that out loud. It's, you know, doctor, I want to be a good healthcare care partner. Um, and I know that sometimes I forget the doctor's instructions. So could I record it? Um, this is just for my use. Um, it's just for me to go home. Like an example that I will say to a doctor is, um, my physical therapist, I, I injured my neck and the physical therapist gave me some exercises to do. But I don't know about other people. You get home and you're like, how many was I supposed to do? Did I, Was I supposed to turn my head that far or this far? Well, what What did she say? Mm-hmm. And so now my husband will go with me and he'll literally film her showing me the instructions and adjusting things for me. And then we'll go home and... Some of it I'll remember because now I'm really paying attention. It's actually thinking about taking in the information more carefully makes you pay attention. But we'll go back and refer to it. Now, my husband actually had some exercises for his back from like three years ago on, on his phone. And his back has been much better. And then recently it started flaring up. He went, instead of going to the doctor, he pulled out the little video on his phone and looked at the instructions and started his exercises again. I mean, I would tell the doctor something like that, that this is so I'm less of a bother to you, you know, so I don't have to keep calling and bothering you because doctors are in a hurry and anything that can give them more time and less time with you, they should be for it. So those are some of the ways I might approach it.
0: Okay, well, that's, that's good to know. The other thing I think that that ends up being kind of a a bit of a problem is, you know, the time, the actual physical time that doctors have to spend with us nowadays has really changed. I mean, before you would go in and they would talk to you and and tell, you know, all your questions were answered, and now their their schedules are so tight, you know, so that they get paid by their insurance companies, it makes it a little bit more difficult. Do you see um, anywhere where... In terms of a process for communicating with a doctor, like uh, for for me when I was in the thick of it with my mom and dad, I would actually email them questions and information ahead of time, and I wouldn't email them to the doctor; I'd email it to the nurse, so the nurse would then make sure it got in front of the doctor and highlighted it. But there was kind of a certain technique that we used in terms of bulleting and not doing, you know, twelve pages of narratives <laughs> for them to be able to go through, for the high points. Do you encourage people to? do Do things like that as well? Yeah,
1: I mean, we can't make the doctor behave, even though sometimes I'd like to. But we can do better on our side of the communication. So definitely, um, if you want to send the doctor something, like say you found an article about your disease and you wanted him to be able to talk to you about it or read it before the appointment, because this is very important to you, don't walk in and hand it to him and think he's going to have time to read it right now. Send it a couple weeks in advance. Mm-hmm. Send him things so he has time to be prepared for your appointment. Don't send him 20 articles. You know, you've got to pick and choose now. Pick the very best thing. Um, I would definitely make a list of my questions, but, you know, most seniors will walk in with 10 complaints. My wrist hurts, my knee hurts, my stomach hurts, my, you know, because we're just, we get more health issues as we age. You've got to prioritize So figure out, of all these things I've written down that I'd like the doctor to address, which are the top two or three? And circle those or put them at the top of the list because the doctor's not going to get through the whole list, but you don't want to walk out of there saying, the most important thing I came here for, he never talked to me about. So you, you want to prioritize your list and bring two copies of the list, one for you to hold so you can stay on track, and one to hand to the doctor, or you can send it in advance. But don't be surprised if it got lost. I would still bring two copies with me. Um, I would also think about it. You have to kind of think like a doctor. Um, they want to know what, what symptoms are you seeing? What's changed? What's different? Um, like one thing that I'll, because a lot of times people with some kind of dementia, they'll go to the doctor and they'll look pretty good. And the doctor will be like, I don't think she has dementia. She doesn't look that bad. Like, I don't think my dad's doctor ever knew he had dementia because he could smile. He could tell a joke. <laughs> he, he couldn't think, right? He couldn't yep. protect himself, but he could do all sorts of charming things. He
0: looks good. So yep,
1: yep. They do this all the time. They, like, really perk up. So make a list of the behaviors. So make a separate list and say, these are the strange behaviors I'm seeing at home. He's putting the in the closet he's um, forgetting to do this and make, because somehow if it's in writing it means it's real mm-hmm. it, 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 it's not true but it's an illusion that if there's a list of things that the doctor can say oh I'm not in your home I, see, I can see now what you're talking about here are specific examples versus just saying he's just not like himself yeah.
0: Yeah. what does that
1: mean you know, so give them some data. Give mm-hmm. them very concise lists. Um, it should not be more than, you know, I, I printed in big font uh, very few items. Um, just don't make it harder for them. And say thank you. If you really want a doctor to spend more time with you, be grateful, be appreciative, say thank you, because I will tell you our doctors are drowning. Mm-hmm. They are so they are like, if you think you're a tired caregiver, they are drowning because nobody's helping them. The system is making it harder and harder. They are quitting. They are committing suicide in rapid numbers. Um, I mean, we've really got to be grateful. And I know it's hard because a lot of times we're mad. Why aren't these doctors doing it the way they used to? We are lucky that any doctor is still practicing. Mm-hmm. So. Be as much as we expect a lot of them. Be thankful too, and because the good ones, we've got to thank, so they'll keep going.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I totally agree. The other thing is, I think so, sometimes people go in marching, telling the doctor, "This is what's wrong," and you know they've researched it, and and I think some doctors um, get offended by that, you know, because you know they're the ones that went to school for a zillion years and. And so I think part of it is our approach as well. I think we have to be advoc ha- we have to be strong advocates. Don't get me wrong there, but but I think approach is really really important. If we go in sharing information and going, you know, gosh, I don't know how you keep up with all this. This is something I just learned. Maybe this would be helpful not only for for my parent, um, in our situation, but for others you're dealing with. I think that goes a long ways as well in terms of. Of just how we how we approach the other thing that I found too, and and maybe there's time for this or or not, but I thought it was also important to let them know what they're still able to do, because a lot of times those discussions are in front of the person, and if you go to the doctor and you're just nitpicking about what they can't to do anymore, that gets really old, and then we wonder why the people don't want to go to the doctor. Um, if we're constantly pointing out the negative as well. So I think we have to be really respectful in terms of what is stated and and try to build that relationship with the doctor. So, um, you know, I'll I'll use driving as an example. A lot of times that's something uh, families just can't address, or they can, but it just gets into fights. But if the doctor mentions it because of the notes that you gave them and takes the responsibility for addressing it versus pointing out, "Hey, your daughter said you shouldn't be driving anymore um it comes in a <laughs> it comes in a whole different light, but yeah, well, you're laughing, but you know that happens all the time. no, no I'm <laughs> laughing because it happens yep because, yeah.
1: it's like I, I just I could just see the doctor walking in there saying and most of them are actually getting to be better communicators, mm-hmm. but some of them still don't quite see it, yep, you know. Because the sending in a note beforehand about all the stuff that's going on, so you don't have to report it, the doctor can just ask the right questions is such an important thing because now you're not ratting out or telling on your loved ones, you're just informing the doctor, and then the doctor can take that and ask appropriate questions.
0: Yeah, and I I was going to say, and it doesn't hurt to add in your note to the doctor, please don't say, I'm the one calling this out. <laughs> you know, because, yeah. because they, they can't remember all family dynamics either. You know, so, right. so give them that little tip. Um, as well, and, and you have a you know a little better chance of it not happening.
1: <laughs> no guarantees. Yeah. But... Unfortunately, I think in life we should be more explicit with our language. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't assume that people understand all the nuances. I think we should just say what we need to say, including don't tell my mom I wrote you this note. Yep. But I think these are things you should know that are happening at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the idea of talking about what they're able to do. Um, that reminds me of a friend's uh, uh, new it's like a card game, but it's like a it's a, a, it's a little card game where you evaluate um, activities of daily living. And it's a, it's a conversation tool. it's called the cards I've been dealt. com. And they basically are it, they do both things. They t- address what you can't do, but you're also creating a pile of all the things you can do. And that's really reassuring. That see, you're still able to do a lot. So you can't do these. Let's see what we can do about those. But look at all the things you can do. You know, there's that lovely balance. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I just wanted to mention because you were really right about not telling the doctor what you think is wrong. Here's how doctors' brains work. They're used to looking at symptoms. Like what is going on? What are the symptoms? The pain. The 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 throwing up, the whatever it is, and then they put those symptoms together and then they come to the conclusion. If you come to the conclusion, um, sometimes you can actually distract them and send them off in the wrong direction. Even though that shouldn't happen, you can, by you coming to the conclusion before they have a chance to think, you may be sending them to in in the wrong medical direction. So report the stuff, the symptoms you're seeing. I'm noticing that he's limping on the left side. I'm noticing that um, he can't seem to hear um, in noisy environments. Talk about the functions and the symptoms and let the doctor pull it together into a conclusion because you and I might jump to the conclusion that this is the normal thing that most people have with these symptoms, but doctors know that there's five or six other things. Yep. And if we close the door for them, then they might close that door and forget to say, wait a minute, but there are those other things, mm-hmm. right? It's just like quickly being out diagnosed with Alzheimer's when it could be vascular dementia, uh, frontal temporal, Parkinson's dementia. There's, there's, We need them to be open to looking at what what is this based on what I've told you. So I, I hope that helps, because I know that I've actually gotten a doctor to go the wrong direction for my own health, mm-hmm. and I was cool to do it, you know, because I thought I was, I, I knew what I was doing, yep. and they, I totally got the wrong treatment for my back for a short period of time, because I, I told them the answer, and I was wrong, I'm not a doctor.
0: Yep, yeah, so. <laughs> and it's really easy for us to do that, because we want answers so bad, um, but we don't. But we don't always have the skill set um, or the knowledge base to to you know go through everything. And, and the answer looks right. Um, but looks can be deceiving, as we all know. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about evaluating danger, that section of the workbook, um, because that's a really unique topic for, for caregivers uh, to discuss. So can you tell us more about your danger formula and the worksheet that uh, the care partners can use?
1: Yeah, thank you. I, I think most people love the danger section of my book the most. I think it's the number one reason most professionals buy my book because it is so unique and so practical and helpful. Um, The other sections people love, but this is the one that really stands out. Um, And it's actually the most popular talk I'm being asked to do at conferences because, again, how do we know when to step in? How should we step in? How much to step in? How do we step in? You know, because a lot of times we we see a, 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 a son who says, I think I need to move my dad. You know, he's not safe at home. And they'll march in, you know, because, you know, adult children, we want to get stuff done. We have agendas. We have, we're trying to do the right thing, but we're in a hurry. And we go in there and we say, Dad, you should move. And we, what? That comes out of nowhere, right? <laughs> yep. And have to stop and say, first off, is he Able to make is dad able to make his own choice about his life? Can dad live in this more dangerous? You know, he's not steady on his feet. Can he make those decisions, or is it really something that I need to step in and make those decisions? Because a lot of times we're stepping in when all we're doing is being bossy, right? Dad is great. Dad's taking care of himself. He's paying his bills online. He's he's all together. And, yeah, he's not very stable on his feet, but he refuses to use his walker. Well, guess what? People that have mental capacity, that have enough mental capacity to take care of themselves, also have the right to live with a certain amount of risk. And Mm -hmm. this drives all of us crazy because we want people to behave. But you know what? If Dad's doing fine, he's allowed to make choices. Will Will I make these changes in my life? Won't I? because that's what we all want for our own lives. But there are times when we have to step in because Dad isn't safe. He doesn't even realize that he should be grabbing his, his cane because he doesn't connect the dots that, oh, I feel tippy, and so I need to grab the cane, or I'm forgetting to take my meds, I should grab the cane. So there's an article, a, a diagram, and a worksheet that all go together kind of explaining how to think through different situations, because it's not a one-size-fits-all. So when we do think that we need to step in because this person can't protect themselves, right, they're just not making a choice that we don't like. Like, like I, don't, I would never ride a motorcycle because I think it's too dangerous, but other people do. I'm not the boss of other people. But if my dad, who has dementia, tries to ride his motorcycle, I need to step in because he's no longer safe. So the formula is basically an easy equation. One number plus a number gives you the answer. And the two questions I ask on this, it's a little diagram. This is why. Trying to explain this with words, it's so much easier if you could see the picture. That's why I love this (laughs) diagram. But basically, we score it from 0 to 10. um, And the first question is, how serious or how dangerous is this thing we're talking about? right? So mm-hmm. dad wants to ride his motorcycle and he has Alzheimer's, uh, quite a bit of Alzheimer's. How dangerous is that? Zero to 10. What do you think?
0: Probably a 12.
1: <laughs> 12, right? Okay. Well, we'll go with 10 because that's the highest number on the scale, <laughs> but it is a 12, right? <laughs> and then the other question we ask is, what's the chance of this action actually happening? Because sometimes we get worried about things that aren't really happening. Um, I can do that. I can wind myself up and worry about stuff that isn't even a reality. Or, and some people, they, they don't even realize we need to worry about this sooner. So mm-hmm. what is the chance of it happening? Well, it's already happening. He already took a tumble going out of the driveway. So 0 out of 10, how ch- is it happening? Yes, it's 10. So basically we would add 10 plus 10, which equals 20. And the highest score is 20, so 0 to 20. Um, so the higher the score, the faster we need to step in because this is really, really serious. We've got to step in. He is in danger today. So another person will say to me, Vicki, my mom won't take a shower, right, because they're scared of the shower. They don't like the water on their body, all the different reasons that might happen. And so... Of course, this lady I'm working with, she's panicking. Oh, she's not taking a shower because, we, you know, it's dignity and cleanliness and respect. And, and, but we have to look at it, how much danger, how much do we need to panic? So um, I would work with her. And, again, it's a tool that you use with the person. The person can use it themselves, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Any caregiver can use these tools by themselves. But as a professional sitting with this person, we're going to talk it through. From 0 to 10, how dangerous is not showering? And the person might say 3. I might think it's a 2. You know, maybe it's a 4. But we kind of come to an agreement about the range, that it's kind of, okay, we'll agree on 3. What's the chance of it happening? Well, we know it's happening, so that's a 10 because it is happening. It's not something that could happen. 3 plus 10 is 13th. A 13 out of 20 means we need to take care of it, but we don't need to panic and we don't have to rush. Right? So if I've got two issues, I've got the motorcycle issue and the bathing issue, now I know the more important thing to address sooner is the motorcycle, and eventually I can get to the bathing issue. Okay. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't, that I don't take care of the bathing issue. I just know how much panic and worry I need to put into it. This
0: helps so much. That makes a lot of sense. And I love that question about, um, you know, is this, you know, what's the likelihood of this going to happen? Because a lot of times we do worry about stuff that isn't going to happen. But, um, you know, and it's like, well, I've already taken the keys to the car away. I've disconnected the battery, you know, so, yeah, the car is still sitting there. He's still maybe driving me crazy saying he wants to take it but physically he can't, you know, right. take it. And so I, I think that that has to be really a calming way for a care partner to put things in perspective because sometimes we just go into that it's driving, me, it's driving me nuts route, and we make an issue when it really isn't an issue. It's, it's a statement that we have to deal with, and we have to learn new ways um, to kind of play with it when it comes up, but we don't have to necessarily sell the car, you know. Um, and and, right. and jump through that type of hoop, and 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 it really takes out that the um, what is truly a danger, and, and you know, and what isn't. Um, right, and, and,
1: and how dangerous?
0: Yeah, uh, because sometimes
1: things could have been a danger because you can also reuse this tool, right? Because Mom used to wander in the house and turn on the stove. Well, that was dangerous. That was a high floor. We need to take care of it. You know, whether we have someone watching her or we take the knobs off the stove or whatever we do to solve it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But now she's so weak. She's on hospice. She's in bed. I don't need to keep worrying about turning on the stove because she can't even get out of bed.
0: Yep.
1: Right? So even something that could be really dangerous. That doesn't mean it's something I need to worry about. There's enough stuff for caregivers to worry about. I want them to focus on the crucial, important things. And the other reason I want them to do this formula is to validate that not only should they focus on those, they must. When we're taking care of someone who can't protect themselves, when it's a high score, you must step in. I don't care if the person doesn't like it. They can't protect themselves. You must, and this validates, when when we must step in, and when we could calm down a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great tool. Um, yeah, that's just a, a brilliant way to to look at things. Can you tell us you have some um, you know three basically other sections in the workbook? You've got the medical decision making um, section and the end of life um, sector, which is always a, a difficult um, piece for people to discuss, and then the caregiver support section. Can you tell us a little bit more about each of those, and are these directed towards family or patients or professionals, or, or can, are they conducive for all three sectors? Right. So um,
1: everything is designed for a caregiver to use, but there's some additional resources in there that guide professionals who are doing the work with the caregiver. So, for example, a caregiver could take any of the sections and use the tools themselves, use the worksheets. It's very self-explanatory. But what's really nice is that the tools are also designed for the professional to have kind of like an activity, right, because we don't just want to talk at people, something where you can sit and say, you know what, let's go through this, this set of questions. So when we're building a care plan, these are the questions we need to address. Now let's do it together. Let's do this worksheet together. So, I mean, ideally the end-of-life section, um, I'm seeing a lot of estate planning lawyers, elder law attorneys, uh, financial planners, a lot of people that work with end-of-life, not just hospice. A lot of people who are doing the planning side are using my tools. Because bioethicists, we ask different questions we approach things differently. The, the reason we're so effective and the reason people are like, we've never heard of these tools, is that they're just bioethics tools. And so a lot of professionals are using sections that apply to their part of the business, where my caregiver support section, that's being used both by the professionals who are having caregiver burnout themselves and those people who are, like, running caregiver support groups um, I'm actually speaking at a couple conferences this week, um, speaking to those who are serving caregivers. Um, one is for a pediatric group because uh, the children have hemophilia and the parents are worn out because that's a hard day in and day out this disease to manage. So the, the parents are wearing out. Mm-hmm. And then the, the people that were booking me, they said, but also address caregiver burnout for the professionals because they're caring. For the caregiver right mm-hmm. and so there's layers to all of this and the medical decision-making guide is of course being used by a lot of hospitals and, and medical professionals so all of it is, is designed for the end users the patient or the family but throughout it is the, the, literally the structure and process it I tell people it's my brain I hand a book to them and I say you just bought my brain this mm-hmm. is exactly how i would talk someone through this particular issue and um it's just that's just how i am i just i have to share and i have to help people you know have better conversations because ultimately you get better outcomes
0: exactly Exactly, well, this uh, this workbook is absolutely, you know, fascinating, um, and it's something I think everybody should should have, kind of as their little Bible, because sooner or later we're all going to be caring for someone else. I mean, that's just kind of kind of the odds um, of the way life works. And if nothing else, it's also going to make us much more conscious of how do we want to be cared for. What are the questions we need to start talking about and addressing with family who might be caring for us you know later on down the road? I mean we could get in a car accident tomorrow I mean you just you just don 't know, and so we have to stop being fearful of a lot of these discussions and um, and look at that as, as living well, you know, being able to live the best we can. Now in your end-of-the-life um, section, you have some worksheets, um, like guidance for my decision-maker and the quality of life template. Can you talk about these, these two um, forms, uh, worksheets, that you've included um, in yeah. your workbook? Yeah,
1: so um, I've, I've gotten one of, the, one of the overall themes to the work I do besides teaching people tools so they feel more supported and, and confident that they're become, they become good decision makers, but that every decision we're making, whether it's medical or how someone's going to live, you know, in that care community, we have to make sure that we're being very human, very um, caring, that this isn't just a body in a bed. This is a real person who has values, who is valued, um, that we have to bring, like, humanity into all of this care, whether it's for someone with a disability, someone who's dying, and we want that for ourselves, right? I had somebody who bought my first book and said, I'm going to use this with my mom, and then I'm going to give it to my daughter so she can use it with me when it's my time, right? Oh, nice. This, this is what you were saying. Um, so I've got, been doing a lot of work, because in bioethics we do a lot of end-of-life work, trying to figure out how to get people to communicate better about their end-of-life wishes, we have these forms, some states call them living wills, advanced directives, uh, and basically they're usually little check boxes. Do you want CPR? Yes or no, check the box. Feeding tubes? Yes or no, check the box. And it really doesn't tell us much else. All we know is a couple certain medical treatments and then we have to guess all the other things that you would or wouldn't want. And the, I realized that for me right now, if I would I uh, the question is, Vicki, would you want a feeding tube right now if you had to have one?
0: Mm-hmm. Because if
1: I check the box, yes or no, I've actually made that decision, right? Because yep. now I'm sick and the doctor's gonna do what I've written down, hopefully. Um, <laughs> the, the thing is is if I have esophageal cancer and I cannot swallow food anymore, You know, but I could still come and do a speech, be on the phone with you, um, go to my niece's um, birthday party, and I have a feeding tube. Nobody wants a feeding tube. I don't get to eat birthday cake. I know I'm disappointed, but I can still live a certain kind of life that brings me enough joy that's defined by me, right? It doesn't have to be what you would want. It's just what I would want. Mm -hmm. Then, Okay, put the feeding tube in. But... If I'm end-stage Alzheimer's and the studies show that at the very end of Alzheimer's, we should not be putting in feeding tubes because the research shows it buys you zero more days and zero better days, and there's terrible harms. People can pull out the tube. There's aspiration. Oh, are you still things.
0: there? Be- oh, can you repeat be- that? You, you cut out a little bit. I'm not sure. quite sure why. Um,
1: sure. So with um. Alzheimer's and stage Alzheimer's not only would I say absolutely no to a feeding tube I'd say no because first it doesn't get me anything good it doesn't give me more days of life it doesn't get me better days of life and it causes me all sorts of harm i I might pull the tube out. I might have aspiration pneumonia where you choke on the food that's being put in there and then it goes up into your lungs I mean, there's all sorts of dangers. The medical research has shown no feeding tubes at the end of Alzheimer's. But Mm -hmm. we put them in all the time because nobody is asking this question, to what end? What's the purpose of these treatments? Mm -hmm. So what I've done in my quality of life statement is I've actually listed some of the things that would tell you why you should put a tube in versus when you should not when would I want CPR, what goal would it achieve, and when would it not? And there's three, um, I'm glad to send anyone a copy of my actual advanced directive if they want to email me, but it's also included in the workbook when you get all the other templates and things. Because basically, I want to know from patients who can't talk to me anymore because they're too ill, what makes your life full of joy? What makes your life worth living? And what would be a fate worse than death? Like, what condition would be horrible to live with? And the third question is, what would be an acceptable level of of better? I know you wouldn't like it, but you could live with it. Because I need some criteria about how you measure your life, written in your words, not some box, right? A box tells me nothing except one little piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. I need you to say, I would hate it if I had this. And I couldn't, like one person said to me, I would hate it if I couldn't both give love and receive love. Right? Yep. Now, that, that could look like just holding each other's hands. Because another person said, if I can't work in my garden, I would hate it. That would be a huge loss to me. Mm-hmm. But as long as I could do these other three things, all right, I could live with it. Okay, I can't work in the garden, but I could do these. You can tell. You, you can have your voice and your preferences, not your medical preferences, but your living preferences documented mm-hmm. in a simple format that helps people un- hear your voice from your perspective when you can't talk for yourself. That's what the template does. And the other form is the guidance for my decision-maker Mm-hmm. This is one that I've created that is so important to me because I see these families. I, I get called in in bioethics to work in the hospital when it's a disaster. The family that war with the doctors, the patient is dying, the, everyone can't agree. It's just a mess. And I'll see that even when there's an advanced directive and the, the, the person, maybe it's the spouse, who's reading it saying, Okay, she said no feeding tube, but there's just a checkbox, right? It doesn't sound like their spouse.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and, and, but I don't know, is this really the right thing to do? I was trying to figure out what could I do so that person could feel like they, you were holding their hand so that maybe I can't hold your hand while you make this decision for me, but I can do it with some words. Mm-hmm. And so in my advanced directive and through this guidance from my decision maker, I've written, like, reassurances. I've chose you because. Like, one person wrote down in their little form- formula thing that I have, I chose you because you know the rest of, your sis- of, of our sisters are crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> because you know I chose you because. Yeah. Or I chose you because. I trust that you'll be strong enough to do what I've asked, even when everyone else is hysterical.
0: Yeah.
1: I chose you because you've always been there for me. Mm-hmm. You know me best. I kn- and, and I know this is going to be hard. I really think we need to write a very small little paragraph to hold that person's hand. I know you can do this. I know I'm asking a lot of you. I believe in you because I know you'll ask the doctor the right questions. You'll make sure that prayers are being said at our faith community. I know that you'll do these things for me. Because this would be so helpful, because I see these families torn apart. They're actually doing the right thing. They know they're doing the right thing, but they don't feel very brave. Mm -hmm. And I I think we could help them feel brave. So that's what I've been trying to create um, some structure and process to help people Say something directly, so that that person will honor their decision.
0: Oh, that's a that's a great way to put it to to help people feel brave because it is, it's so scary. It's just, you know, so scary to maybe do the wrong thing, and um, even when you've had the discussions, when the time comes, you think, did they change their mind? You know. What is the right decision? And, and the more we can have that reassurance ahead of time, the easier, the easier it will be, the more in-depth we can have these conversations, the easier it is to stand up and, and be brave with that. Right, so. and
1: at the end of the document, it, there's a section that says, here's what I need you to do for me. You know, make sure someone's feeding the dog. You know, there's a little section, like, come to the hospital, mm-hmm. you know, talk to these people, just a little guidance because there are things we want people to be taking care of for us. Then there's a little section where I remind people that the law says that we're supposed to honor the patient's wishes, um, just to remind them that that is the standard. Mm-hmm. And then at the very bottom it says, if you can't do this for me, if you're not comfortable, if you're if this isn't what you want to sign up for, then tell me now. And then there's a place at the bottom where they sign that, yes, I will do it. Yep. Now, now, this is not a legal document, like mm-hmm. if you don't go to your lawyer for this, but what it does is it creates the conversation. When I bring, when my husband filled this out for me, right, we actually use all of these tools ourselves because I needed to say certain things to him, and he needs to say certain things to me. So at the bottom of it, you, you, you fill it out, you go and talk to that person, and you say, here's what I'm sharing with you, can you look through it, and I'll wait, and then we can talk about it, right? So now we're actually having that important conversation. We're not just writing it down. Mm-hmm. And are you willing to do this? Yep. Because you wouldn't believe, Lori, how many times we call at the hospital, we call to that person that's on the form, and they say, I had no idea. We never talked about it. Yep. I didn't even know she picked me.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, disaster. it's It's kind of like, I mean, when you take a plane ride, and you're in the exit aisle, and they're like, Okay, we're going to ask you one more time. We know when you booked the seat, you said you were willing to to help people get off the flight. In case of an emergency, are you willing to do that? And, again, it's just good business to have these conversations and to be upfront, not to not to surprise somebody and all of a sudden they're not sure what the conversations were, even though you had them, but to let them know how important this is to you as well. Um, that you that you've taken the time to have this conversation with people, it just is so much easier. I know my folks um, when they went through, uh, you know, the attorney, and we're trying to figure out who's going to pull. My dad would refer to it as pulling the plug on them. They said, "Well, we're going to have Mark do it because we know he won't have a problem. You and Scott are going to be puddles, but Mark, Mark can do this, you know." <laughs> and it was just kind of personality style. And um, you know it was it was a joke, but but it was very true. You know he he would have an easier time doing that than uh, myself and my little brother, and um, and that's okay to recognize that. Um, you know because you if if you truly want what you want, then you have to make sure that you've got somebody who can who can stand up to it and in, who can be brave in a, in a scary situation and isn't going to second-guess themselves to death because some of us do that. And, um, you know, and that, that can be really destructive. And time is a lot of times of the essence in some of these decisions. So we've got to have that paperwork in order. We've got to have these conversations um, together. Um, Vicki, this has just been, as always with you, just a wonderful, wonderful, informative conversation. Can you tell people again how they can get your book and um, what's the best contact information that you would like to share with them?
1: Right. So my website is www.kindethicsethics.com And so you can contact me right through there. You can also email me directly at kindethics at gmail.com. Um, my workbook is not for sale through, like, Amazon. It's something I just sell directly. And so you just email me and let me know, you, and we'll communicate, and I'll get you your address, and you can give, send me a check or however we want to do that. Um, if you do want to buy my original book that's designed for decision-making specifically for those who lack capacity, um, then, and you can order that, again, directly through me. I can send you everything. Or you can get it through Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, all those places. Um, and, you know, I also am available. You know, sometimes people want to have a conversation and kind of run something by me. I do phone consults, and a lot of people don't know that I do this. And that people are like, I think I'm making the right decision. Can I run this by you? Um, and there's a fee for that. But... You know, you only most people only need me for like a half hour, mm-hmm. maybe an hour, and they feel better because they got. It's like, okay, I've got this now. I can move forward. Mm-hmm. So um, that that's another option. Sometimes people arrange to, um, you know, just speak to me and, you know, to feel better or to have some clarity regarding their hard decisions.
0: Okay, well, wonderful. Well, you have a brilliant day, and I wish you so much uh, luck and success with all you're doing. You you just bring some. Really needed questions to the table. And you and you truly are that bridge between the professionals and the family. So huge kudos. That's not an easy job to bridge. <laughs> you know? Thank you. So you're really, really doing a fantastic job. And, again, I, I look forward to having you on the show again in the future. Um, because you you always just give us so much to think about and such great tools when you come for people to be able to tap into when they're caring for a loved one. So thank you again, Vicki. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, just do some highlights here and uh, a couple of shout outs as well before we wrap up the show if you didn't listen to the last couple of shows we had the Sky Factory on with a great product Uh, Ray Ward was on with us and it is um, outdoor scenes that can be put um, overhead or in a window some are still, some move pretty fascinating and it can make any environment a comfortable one and this is a a really relaxing piece that uh, anybody in dementia care could add into their community and uh, it will benefit not just your residents but family and staff as well we also had a recent show with Gary Joseph LeBlanc um, and he talked about his latest book, The After Effects of Caregiving, which was just again fascinating, Gary has been through a lot with, in his own personal life and he really talks in um, in raw moments about what that was like and and how it affected his life when his his dad passed away. Uh, Next week, we're going to have Ben Atkinson-Willies with us with Active Minds from the UK, and we're also going to have the Savvy Senior uh, group with us that's going to be talking about a new educational fair and a screening of his neighbor, Phil. Uh, next Tuesday will also be the the new Dementia Chats uh, webinar, which everyone is welcome to attend. Again, our experts actually are those living with dementia. So we encourage you to bring any questions that you have, any topics that you want to discuss, because this is, is not anything that is structured. Uh, it's all about bringing people together and having, again, a normal conversation. If you are in Minnesota... Um, come to the Alton, which is a memory care uh, at 1306 Alton Street in St. Paul, Minnesota. On October 13th, at 5 o'clock, we're going to have appetizers and beverages. And then at 5.30, we are going to do a screening of the new dementia film, His Neighbor Phil. Afterwards, starting about 7 o'clock, we're going to have a little talk back session and if you'd like to RSVP, you can call 651 695 2384. 651 695 2384. And uh, you can email also um, your RSVP to K Edson, that's K E D S O N, at com. Uh, k e d s o n at stuart s t u a r t c o dot com we 'd love to see you there this is a brilliant brilliant film and it 's uh, my pleasure as a platinum sponsor um, you know Alzheimer's speaks as platinum sponsor to be involved with this, uh, with these screenings, we're going to be doing them all around the country. And uh, so, if you have a chance to check them out, please do so. I also want to give a shout out to some of our uh, sister programs here at Alive and Social. And I and I have to say, I just love that I have moved my show here. Um, the staff have just been wonderful to deal with, and it's just a very fun fun place to work. If you haven't listened to the Twin Cities Hit Show. It's on in um, broadcast live from the Twin Cities here Monday through Thursday at 9.30 every morning, and um, it, it's pretty funny. Rusty Gatenby, who was a former KSTP traffic and entertainment reporter, along with comedian Colleen Justice, and the former Bloomington cop turned comedian Chuck Gallup, uh, run the show, and you'll hear all the local things that are going on in the news, and you'll listen and learn and and just laugh um between the three of them they're they're pretty entertaining for those of you that are sports minded uh check out apples to apples uh it's a sports show featuring a father and son team of Scott and drew Applebaum and you'll find out if father really knows best or not and uh you know they they banter back and forth on on uh, all kinds of uh, things regarding uh regarding sports. So check in with uh, apples to apples. And the last one I want to give a shout out to is the sports ticket. Um, The sports ticket is your entry to all sports. So uh, Greg George and Kendall Mark broadcast every Monday in the studio and Thursday live from Bennett's Chop and Railhouse. And they They talk about past and and upcoming games in the Twin Cities and they cover all the wide variety of sports from the Lynx and Gophers and Vikings and Wild and uh, Timberwolves and the Twins. So tune in and get winning tips for your fantasy football league and and hear what the scoop is as the the guys travel around there. In closing, I would just like to uh, share with you uh, the memory chip which is a tool we have on alzheimerspeaks.com. You just have to register, and then you can go in and get all of our free tools. But the memory chip helps you refocus on what is important. Um, When when we're care partners, we typically have this big, long checklist, and those things still need to get done. But if we're truly going to be person-centered and put that person first, we have to focus on three things. Are they safe? happy and pain-free. And when we do that, we'll, we'll do those tasks just a little bit differently. It's pretty fascinating how it works. Um, but it's a powerful tool, costs you no money. So go to alzheimerspeaks.com and check in. And last, don't forget to share us and like us and tweet us out. Um, this was a fascinating conversation, again, with bioethicist uh, Vicki Kind. Um, she always shares great information. So I'd appreciate your support in getting her tools out there to the rest of the world. Till next week, have a great have a great time. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days join me listen now search for senior fitness with meredith on your favorite podcast platform